Welcome to First Generation Burn, a podcast dedicated to immigrants in the creative community. My name is Rich Tu, and I'm your host. Today, we have a very special episode. It's another collaboration with the OG Magazine. Shout out to friends of the pod, the OG, and also Che Morales, former guest. Uh, we've collaborated with them before, and we're doing it again with Jeff Staple, one of the icons of streetwear and also sneakers. Um, and also, he helped create the look and feel of hip-hop in the late 90s and 2000s. We talk about all of it, on top of founding staple um the iconic brand um and also we talk about his view of design is um how we actually got into that world um spoiler alert he's also a jersey boy just like your host uh we really get into it and he has a brand new book with rizzoli that's going to come out it's going to be a beautiful presentation so can't wait for y'all to listen to this without further ado here's a conversation with jeff staple jeff staple you are a designer, entrepreneur, and the founder and owner of Staple Design Studio, Read Space, and also you're the host of the Business of Hype podcast on Hypebeast. Thank you for being here today on First Generation Burden. Thank you for having me. Sorry for my long intro of many things. <laughs> Not at all. If anything, it's well-deserved and also probably the reason why you're here. It's definitely the reason why you're here. Uh, and. And also shout out to the OG Magazine. There's a special collaboration with them and there will be a transcription or version of this Living the Magazine. So um, let's just start the way we start every one of these conversations. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from. would love to hear a little bit about the beginning of your journey. Yeah. Um, so my name is Jeff Staple. Um, I often, just to keep it succinct, say I'm the founder and creative director of Staple and Read Art Department. Um, so Staple is a is a streetwear brand, um, maybe one of the early, earliest ones because uh, Staple was founded in 1997. Um, so this year marks the 25th anniversary in 2022 of the brand, um, which is a, a crazy, crazy milestone. It's a quarter century. It's insane. Um, Read Art Department is the creative agency arm of what I do. Uh, where we service different clients on on uh, a myriad of different projects from marketing to brand development to ideation to collaboration curation. Um, and Reed uh, Art Department has always been there as well from 1997. It used to be called Staple Design Studio. It was like the design studio side. Um, in 2001, I opened one of the first multi-brand lifestyle street culture brick and mortar stores in the Lower East Side of New York called Reed Space. It stood there for 16 years. Um, and then when we closed Reed Space, I adopted the name Reed Space, R-E-E-D, to become the creative agency name Reed Art Department, just to give some separation between the brand and the agency because people were getting confused, you know, oddly enough, because they both were staple. Um, so that's uh, the two main things. I've, I've also embarked now on uh, Web3 and NFTs. Uh, with Stapleverse. So that's a whole separate entity. Um, and then, as you said, I, I do podcasts and talks. Uh, I have a show called The Business of Hype on Hypebeast, um, which uh, is is awesome because it just allows me to speak to industry peers about um, their creative journey, but more so focused on like the granular hows and whys of what they do. You know, uh, it's sort of a mix of Forbes meets Hypebeast, if you will. Um, and yeah, so I mean, uh, I was born in New Jersey to Chinese immigrant parents. Um, went to went oh, wait, to high school. Where in where in New Jersey? I don't think I knew that. Where I was born in uh, Monmouth County, Freehold, like sort of oh, mid, yeah, central mid Jersey, Jersey. Okay. central Jersey. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, uh, South Orange. I was actually born oh, in cool. uh, St. Barnabas. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I'm, I'm in Brooklyn now, but yeah, Jersey boy. Yeah, Jersey, Jersey represent. Um, yeah, so I was there through high school and then um, really, really, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a, a way to say this, but it's just very white. It was very, it was a very white experience <laughs> for me. Um, just to give you an example, my high school had 1,600 student body and three Asians in 1600 kids so you know like, what that sounds about right though i know i know that we're not <laughs> so different in age that sounds about right to me given the time mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah now it's it's probably much more diverse but um it was it was rough growing up as a minority in the 70s and 80s you know um yeah 
it was it was very like there was no political correctness so people just like called you whatever they wanted to call you on a daily basis yeah were you in public school or private school what was the situation public as fuck yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah public as fuck um and yeah it was cool i mean like i had i had my i had my i wasn't popular i also wasn't like bullied every day i just my my job as a minority was to just stay under the radar as much as possible and not ruffle feathers because if you did you're gonna get beat down by like the quarterback or like you know like the wrestling team or whatever and so you just sort of like lay low and mind your own business you know i had my click of like four or five homies and you know Mm. that was really it you know um and then i went to uh and then i went to nyu um for for journalism uh i i dropped out of that and then um went to parsons school of design for uh communication design aka graphic design um and it was at parsons that i silk screened uh, my first staple shirt um wow. and then and then i eventually dropped out of parsons so i have no college degree to show my chinese parents um so i'm a, <laughs> I'm, a fail- I'm a failure in their eyes <laughs> uh, do your parents know what you do like do they understand what you do my dad has no idea what i do um in fact when i dropped out of art school um as you can imagine like dropping out of they're nyu like, is they're like oh thing. my god jeff you're gonna die in the street yes going to art school was like what going to right. art school what does that even fucking mean right like right i'm the only child of parents that immigrated here strictly for the purpose of having a child with a US passport. You're going to graduate high school, you're going to graduate college, you're going to be an accountant or a lawyer, you're going to drive a BMW 7 Series, you're going to have a house with a picket fence, you're going to get married to a beautiful Chinese woman and have beautiful Chinese babies. And I did none of that. Like I fucked up the whole <laughs> plan. Like I did, I, I got a, I was a C, I was a 2.0 GPA student. I scored a I scored a ten ten on my SATs after Stanley Kaplan, oh, wow. <laughs> right after tutoring. I got a ten ten. Managed to squeak into NYU by by the grace of God. I was about to say, out. I was like, wait, how'd you get into NYU with a ten ten? Because Did you have a ton 19- of extracurriculars. No, because in nineteen ninety two, okay, when I graduated high school, NYU was a shitty school. It was it was during my time that NYU decided it wanted to become, it actually wanted to gun to become an Ivy League school. So it did like, it, it never it never happened, but they really wanted to become an Ivy League level school. So they, they, they advanced themselves up while I was there. But in the, in the early 90s, if you did, um, I think, what, the, what do they call it? Um, what are they, early enrollment or something like that? Like when you say to the school, if you accept me, I will deny all my other applications and I will go to your oh. school. You, you can check a yeah. box that yeah, says yeah. that. And they say- it Cutting doesn't, a deal early. Yeah, it, it, they say it doesn't help with their acceptance, but early, early decision. decision. Thank you, Abby. Yeah, so I checked off early decision. They're like, yeah, please come, please come. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> so yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I uh, NYU. And, then, and this is before know, it was like NYU film school was like, oh, NYU. Yeah. Oh, I, well, I wasn't trying to be an artist, to be honest. I, right. Like, I right. had no clue about that. I was going to uh, CSA, um, School of Science and Arts for with journalism. Um, mm. And then, yeah, dropped out of that, went to art school. They were baffled, um, really, really upset. And uh, and then I and then dropping out of art school, like I said, was like, yeah, a, a, a rift. I didn't talk to my dad for 10 years after that. <laughs> Whoa! Get out of here. Okay. Yeah, Shit. it was like a it was like a disownment, pretty much. Damn. Um, and it's my like, mom. You ever watched Kim's Convenience? No, I never seen the show yet. Oh, it's actually a really good show. There's a bit yeah, of that I between Simu Simu Liu and his father. Not for different reasons, obviously, uh-huh. but the uh-huh. show actually covers um, th- that type of familial Dynamic, right? rift. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um. Me and my mom stayed close, but she she for the longest time did not understand what I did, um, and still asks me funny questions every once in a while about you know it's just I, I I can understand why I mean like frankly speaking, when I was in high school and I was like into sneakers, yeah, um, people didn't understand why I was into sneakers. Like it's so weird because I just remember now like in high school being into sneakers was like a nerd thing. It wasn't yes. cool to have kicks. It was like, 
great. You have another pair of Jordans. You're weird. Like, you yeah. know, like it, I remember one other kid was into sneakers when I was in high school. And then like, so being into like, um, you know, t-shirts and like skate tees and hip hop music and like a little bit of punk and sports, right. like having multiple interests was confusing because if you think right. about it, I mean, if, if you're from this era of a public high school, you had the jocks, you yes. had the smoker kids in the parking lot, right? right? It's like jocks you and had... burnouts don't pair well together. Like that doesn't no. make any sense. No, you can't go from one to the other. Yeah, you, you know? can. Yep. Yeah, like the, and if you... remember when the movie Kids came out, it was like kids like had like it painted a certain portrait of youth in New York, but also like in that in the tri-state area. But then that yeah. was so far removed from um, what you would think of like, uh, uh, uh -huh. yeah, in a much more Average traditional US like high school, high school cafeteria. Yeah. yeah. You look at exactly. Euphoria now. It's like, how is like this? We've come so far between <laughs> like the commonalities of everyone that sits in this same exact space. It's absolutely insane. Yes, absolutely. So that was that was a uh, me through through college. Um, and then, yeah, like I said, in 97, I was attending Parsons. And that's when I silkscreened the first staple shirt. Wow. Were you always so diverse when it came to your desire for creative output or was it, has it been more of a cumulative experience world? Here's a focus, expand the focus, keep going, going, going. Or did you That's always a great want question. To so diverse? Uh, I had, I always, you said creative output. I always had a diverse creative input. So like I was into many things, you know, like I remember in my first year in college, like, I was super into, like I said, sports, rap, um, graphic design, typography, and graffiti, okay, and DJ culture. So, like, there weren't many people that were, like, going to graphic design bookstores and learning about, like, Paula Cher, Pentagram Design, Tibor Kalman, David Carson, mm. but then also, like, Futura and Stash, because, like, they were almost, like, diametrically yeah. opposed, like... One person is like typeface font heavy. The other one's like ruining the yeah. typeface. Like Tibor's book is like this thick. And then Futura lives in yeah. like, you know, uh, you can find him in Juxtapose magazine if you didn't live in New York City. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And then, you know, even even with the hip hop that I was into, you know, in the in the early 90s, um, mid 90s, the ruling class of hip hop music was Puff and Biggie. Right. And then and then you had like uh, West Coast. You had Death Row Records. Um, so it was a very like rap culture dominated thing that was happening in the 90s. But then I was into like what was back then um, un unlovingly known as like backpack rap <laughs> and like conscious hip hop. Yeah. So like I was really inspired by like most Def, Talib Kweli, yeah. The Roots, Common, Erica Badu and, and the like. Um, so like it was weird just to have like a Chinese kid at these open mics like in you know and like dj battles and stuff like that and so you had all these sort of like juxtaposed touch points inputting into my yeah. head and that's why I, I sort of corrected you when you said output because at that moment i had no freaking clue mm. what my output or contribution to the culture was going to be i was a sponge soaking it in you know oh, that's and interesting even when i started staple i wasn't thinking like oh Staples going to be this thing that adds to the culture. Like, no, nah, I was like, I was like, I'm going to put artwork on t-shirts because I think that's a really strong medium yeah. versus putting it on like a piece of paper that hangs in my apartment in Bush. Right, right. It's like you you're, um, you're a lens. You're acknowledging that you're a lens for inputs and then your output can just be whatever it needs to be. Yeah. Although I wasn't even that strategic about it. I was um, still formulating that answer. You know, I think it's, Hindsight's twenty twenty. It's easy now to look back on twenty five years of that and be like, "Wow, Jeff, you were so strategic about multi prong, omni channel <laughs> contribution to a youth cult." Like, but it it was more like hindsight adding just hindsight. Yeah, it was adding one onion layer at a time until like you get the the sort of stack. You know, totally. What I mean? And the stack, I agree, is really beautiful, but. I don't think anybody could have pre-programmed the stack from day one. Yeah. The beauty is in the in the additive of it, you know, not like you couldn't have thought like for instance like in 1997 I wasn't going to be like 
I'm going to design a dunk with Nike that changes sneakers. You know, yeah. like you don't say, you don't, you don't plan. You can't write a business plan for that. Shit. Yeah, exactly. Well, you can, you you're kind of teeing up the next question. I know you've done so much stuff and I also, I do want to touch a little bit on um, some of the album designs that you've worked on as well. Yeah. Prior to that, I mean, like after I had started uh, making the first few staple shirts and then um, luckily selling them in local downtown boutiques, in New York City, um, purely by accident. I wasn't trying to start a brand. I was wearing the shit that I was making in school. And then the first store that ever placed an order was Triple Five Soul um, down in the Lower East yeah. Side. I literally walked in and the manager- Not Jersey Gardens? Like, That's a cool shirt. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. Um, there for like five minutes. But yeah, the manager was just like, <laughs> he was like that that's cool that's a cool shirt where'd you get that and i was like i made it and he was like oh if you down like make 12 and we'll put them in the shop and that was the first store that I ever ordered uh and then by sheer luck the manager of union new york um you know union the store in la now started its roots in new york city and so the manager of union was good friends with the manager of triple five and the the union guy was like oh that's dope like if you make us a design like we'll put it in union you know so Right off the cuff, I'm in Triple Five Soul and Union, and then uh, and then the third store um, I that I wanted to get into uh, and I actually sold it to was um, Bobito Garcia had a store called Bobito's Footwork, and I got into that. And then uh, Tony Chan had a store called Swish with Bill McMullen, and I got into that. So like, and then there was another store called Bomb the System, which is a graffiti store that's still there, I think, on Canal and West Broadway. Um, so I had like these five boutiques that were selling staple shirts at like 12 to 24 to 36 pieces at a clip. Oh, yeah. like just Obama really system small. used to be a uh, scrapyard. Yeah, scrapyard. Exactly. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's scrapyard oh, now. Yeah. Oh, no, you're right. It's scrapyard. Yeah, it's scrapyard now. Yeah, yeah. So like markers, yeah. cans, B-boy tapes be back the in the day. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I'm still hand silk screening all of these shirts. And by the way, I had to break into Parsons to use their facilities at night to do this silk screening because they weren't Parsons wasn't allowing me to silk screen on t-shirts in the silk screen lab. They were only allowing silk screening on paper. So me and my friend had to like leave the window of Parsons silk screen lab lab unlocked. And then we would actually like crawl in through the window to use the silk screen lab at night. So all the while that I'm fulfilling these orders, it's me hand pulling every single shirt, right? Um, and to, to answer your question, while that was happening and staple was sort of getting, these t-shirts were getting a little bit of traction, people found out that I was a, a, a fairly decent designer. And so they were like, um, Hey, I have an album cover. I have a, I have a mixtape cover. I have a logo. I have a business card. I have a party invite that I need design, like small, dumb downtown New York city shit. No, like this wasn't like, you know, Red Bull wanting me to design a right, logo. Right. It was literally like the Lyricist Lounge wanted a flyer, <laughs> you know, like uh, Raucous Records. Like uh, we we signed this guy named, um, uh, I'm trying to think of an early one, like Sadat X or like Company Flow. Like we signed this guy named LP. Can you like help with the album cover and the t-shirt for that, right? And so I was like just on, on my downtown hustle shit and it was fun. But um, a couple of really seminal ones was the one I just mentioned, Raucous. You know, they ended up becoming a real pillar in in the golden era of hip hop, as they call it, right? Um, so I was sort of like right there in lockstep with Black Star, Common. You know, it was the first time that Eminem ever mm. appeared. Oh on yeah, a that's right. You know, so like these really early roots. Yeah, yeah DJ Spinna, like sound Club. bombing. Remember so that iconic sound time. bombing cover where it was just like all the names, like all those names just became people and then one i designed that oh, i designed that... i designed sound oh bombing. wow with uh with the orange background yeah. and then the the band yes. i literally have that poster yes. hanging in my hallway <laughs> i picked up that did you get sound bombing, sound bombing too, too? where it was like the train the tr did you get the train oh. one well, i don't know if i have the train one there's one where it was, it was the 12 inch only but like it was five records and they were all cross sections of a subway train but when you buy all five, it forms one whole train. Oh, what? Like, that you can like put together. Oh, yeah. I have. So I designed I, that was me. So I crazy. I have the um, I have the poster, yeah. the promotional poster that I picked with the airbrush Ted. Yeah, and, stuff. and yeah. I uh, picked that up at uh, Rocksteady Anniversary in nineteen ninety nine, nineteen ninety eight. 
and I was hanging out there with uh, my homies from Rocco Finex crew it was a Jersey B-Boy crew. And then we were and uh, uh-huh. breaks crew was like the kind of uh, the New York crew. That was like the one coming up and like uh-huh. Chino was like crushing it. And like and, um, our homies, Odie. And yeah, this is so this is so like specific listeners. So apologies for all the nerdism. But yeah. uh I yeah, the eight eight people will understand. Yo, one hundred percent. But then um I remember I was ruffling through uh a, a lot of my my old stuff like 10 years ago, and then I found the poster. Mm-hmm. I was like, yo, this poster is so dope. And I ended up getting it framed. I spent like five hundred dollars just sick. to kind of you know, just kind of live the memory and have it uh, you know uh, put in a in a glass box for posterity. So yeah, it's like one of it's the first thing you see yeah, when you walk yeah. into my apartment. That's, that's kind of crazy. That's I didn't a, even realize that. You. Amazing. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Uh, it's just a, a really special time. And then the other, the other project that I worked on that in the beginning seemed really small and also like whatever was like this small magazine started and they were like, Hey, you know, would you be down to come and design our logo and then design like our first issue, like our first real issue out, you know, and that magazine was the fader magazine. And so like being on the ground floor of this eventually very important cultural music lifestyle publication, um, I ended up designing like the first 20 issues actually. Like I just kept staying, you know? Um, And that was, that was those, those two, like being at Raucous and the Fader in downtown New York city, like it's kind of the keys to the kingdom. You know what I mean? Like it's an amazing unlock. It's like um, post David Carson, post Ray Guns, like everything after that, what uh-huh. it felt like this, everything you're saying is like the fader and sound bombing. It was all yeah. that. Yeah. 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 People, people don't realize that. Well, actually people now do realize because uh, like Virgil, you know, rest in peace. He, he posted a lot of like fader articles on his IG, like about how he was a kid in Chicago, like, and fader was like the unlock for, what was going to become street yeah. culture, you know, like they were like the first before that you had Rolling Stone, you had Vibe, you had Double XL, right. but like, you know, they didn't talk about rock. They didn't talk about electronic music. They didn't talk about, you know, fashion, you know, so like this magazine fader that had rock, rap, electronic, um, fashion, street culture, sneaker culture, like all in one right. was like really revolutionary. Like, it was yeah, that's um, so true. It, it- it's funny everything you're saying right now it's like that was when i thought hip-hop the aesthetic of hip-hop felt like it was growing up from a design perspective um where you had actual design choices being made with intent and i think there's some really interesting choices being made in the early 90s especially when it came to Uh um you know like like uh, Wu Tank, Thirty Six Chambers, like doggy style like those are some amazing choices yeah yeah of course but then Uh i feel actual design system thinking starting to happen in the late 90s into the early 2000s especially when it came to the editorial side yeah, of the I would, I'd like to think that I had a part in that because here I am coming up through like typography graphic design being a crazy backpacker yeah. and I wanted to apply those two things and the other the other person that I want to give a big shout out to that was like I looked up to was a was a designer named Brent Rollins um who also is a massive graphic design nerd, but also a massive hip hop head. And I actually asked Brent to art direct my Rizzoli book, which he did. So like I went full circle and Brent Rollins is actually the designer of the book, which is amazing. But yeah, it's just, I I think it was about that time where like hip hop needed to grow up and and become a little bit more, you know, um, not necessarily polished, but just thought, like put some more thought into the presentation of hip hop versus you know, just putting stuff out in any way yeah. you can. Oh, the presentation you know? of hip hop. Yeah, that. Yeah, that's. I love the way you just said that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I love yeah. to pivot a little bit. I'd love to talk about the the pigeon dunk. It's so iconic, right? It's so iconic, and there's been mm-hmm. so much digital ink spilt on the pigeon dunk. But from from a design perspective, and I spent time um, in the Nike organization in World Headquarters as a graphic designer for footwear for a couple of years. So, like the mm-hmm. yeah. So okay. the the knowledge of what it takes to actually make a pair of sneakers. It's well, one, it's takes time it takes a lot of human beings Uh and it's not easy and also someone that also comes in from let's say a more of a a, like a static two-dimensional world but then creating a design storytelling applied on a three-dimensional object Uh there's a bit of a there's a um uh a distance to compress right so what from a design perspective 
what do you think that the pigeon dunk was doing that wasn't happening in the landscape at the time? And also what were your challenges when you're creating that? Um, from a design perspective, I mean, if you want to talk purely from a design perspective, there is nothing revolutionary about the pigeon dunk, right? Uh, it is a gray shoe with a pigeon embroidered on it. So the the beauty of the pigeon dunk comes in marketing, go to market strategy, retail, uh, you know, um, quick strike thinking. Right. Like it, it was all in in that that made it uh, what it what it could potentially be. And then there was a lot of yeah. luck. There was know? a beautiful um, stitch logo on I the think, lateral side by the by the ankle, though. I think that was that was a yes, bit different. That was a that that start. Yeah. That was new. Yeah, that was a new thing, I think. Uh, maybe there had been less than five shoes in existence that had a stitched logo on the exterior heel. Yeah, right? actually, I, um, I can, I can I probably think, think of like, yeah, less than five. Like the Brazils, the NYCs, yeah. Air Forces. Dunks really hadn't done it at the time, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it was more about the, the the real beauty of that was like, you know, I got a call from Nike to, to say, you know, we want to do a dunk that's dedicated to New York City and would you like to work on that? And so, of course, I jumped at the opportunity and instead of doing the obvious things like an Empire State Building or Statue of Liberty Inspire thing, like I went, I went deep in the cut and I wanted to do something that you would only understand if you lived and breathed in New York City, right? So, you know that hashtag that goes around like, if you know, you know, or like, you know, I, Y, K, Y, K, like that whole thing. That was what I was trying to do before that term existed. I wanted to do something that was only for the people right. who knew. But when I presented the idea of pigeon dunk back to Beaverton, they were like, there's not, there's no pigeons in Beaverton, <laughs> you know, like, so they were what just like, that? they have that other animal. What is that? What is that beaver? That like aggressive oh my beaver God. looking thing. Uh, Nutria. Nutria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh my God. Those that's, things are gross. That's the official. Those things are gross. Gross. Like fanged fucking they, beavers. Um, actually, the um, um, the Oreo Essis in the film Princess Bride was actually inspired by Nutria. <laughs> that's how gross they are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're all over campus. Um, so yeah. So I, you can imagine me presenting this idea of like, vermin and a winged rat <laughs> as like oh oh jeff thinks this winged rat represents new york city should we like actually believe him and like right. allow this although happen? yellow rat bastard I think, was that had a logo that had a rat logo at the time yeah yes they had a rat logo but that's one store right. not a billion dollar publicly traded organization you totally know? <laughs> so i think the the one of the key factors was nike trusting their collaborator and they were just like we don't understand why pigeon means this you yeah. know again hindsight 2020 you got to take this back to like 2002 you know the shoe came out in 05 but we were ideating on this in 02 and you got to remember like no one was using pigeons as like a cool thing back then you know it was like strictly like some vermin shit and so for them to have the the confidence and the wherewithal to be like yeah let's let's believe Jeff and frankly, I didn't know either. Like it could have been a, the biggest flop of my life as well, you know. Um, but luckily, the when when word got out that a pigeon dunk was coming out, all the heads, New York City heads, hip hop heads, downtown, you know, heads like understood the inside joke immediately. Yeah. You know, they're just like pigeons. We get it. We we are the pigeons. We are the New York <laughs> City hustlers. You know, and we embody that spirit. And so like. You, you know, back then, I didn't have the, the stage or the marketing prowess or the influence, frankly, to be like, I'm releasing a pigeon dunk, so everyone fuck with it. Like, I didn't have that power back then, you know? Like, people understood it, and they adopted it immediately for themselves. You know, that, that was the beautiful thing that you can't buy or replicate. Yeah. And so that happened, and then a couple of other lucky things happened, <laughs> lucky or unlucky, but like, the fact that it was like the dead of winter, the fact that there was a blizzard, the fact that people started lining up and got really agitated because it was fucking cold. Right. Like it would have been different if we released that in the summer. Yeah. You know, people were like agitated, right? Then somebody called the cops to, to shut down the block. Then people got arrested. And then 
the reporter for the New York Post lived in the Lower East Side. So shout out Rachel Sklar. She got the scoop on it. And it was on the front page the next day. All of these things are can't like lucky, happy coincidences. You can't predict yeah. it. You can't plan it. And and then because of that newspaper article, because of the NYPD, because of the riot, it just became like this mythological thing that all is like pinned on this. As you, if you want to ask about the design aspect of it, a gray new buck sneaker with a pink bottom and an embroidery on the heel. That's yeah. it. You know, so that's what, the, but, but it, it is important to the culture. Um, it's a gift and a curse for me as a, as a creative. Yeah. Um, but I do recognize that people really pin that shoe for better, for worse, um, as one of the shoes that kicked off sneaker culture as we know it. Yeah. Today. 100%. I, I, do you have a hard out in the next six minutes or what's your, can you go another 15? Uh, what's your life looking like right now? Yeah, no, I'm good. No, I'm, I'm pretty no. open. Okay, cool. Okay. Awesome. Uh, that's you know it's funny because that you're right like as an outsider looking in at the time and also being someone that was like a, just a few years out of college that to me was such an iconic moment i think to the whole community is such an iconic moment that one got people into sneakers you know for better or for worse um kind of started like mm -hmm. a whole another level of consumerism and also collectism yeah. for me and like also you know a lot of my peers and cohorts especially in tri-state area i'd love to hear a little bit about your design philosophy overall do you subscribe to a design philosophy yeah i'm very much about um uh function over form so to me the thing has to feel good and work first and foremost um and then i could apply veneer and and form to it but if it doesn't function then i probably won't fuck with it at first you know and whether that's a shoe or or my business um, or anything, I, I try to adhere to that as much as possible. Um, hence the name staple, you know, staple, people ask me what staple means. It's like staple is inspired by the idea of like a raw essential element that you can't live without. Yeah. Right. So like everything is based off of that idea first and foremost. And I try not to be fluffy with shit. Like I try not to do things for the sake of I'm a designer, so I can do this like extraneous fluffy thing yeah. i try to root it in something that actually works first and then add my spice yeah. to it but you know it's like a chef right like like yeah you could put all the spice and the presentation and the beautiful plate and everything but like if it just doesn't taste good yeah. you won't actually finish the dish you know yeah. so that's kind of like the my design philosophy uh when it comes to like all new tech tools like the, the way that the the way that we make having changed over the past 25 30 40 50 years even like how how have you personally adopted to some of the new tech out there in order to just advance your design practice um like even go yeah so, even go back to like photoshop I mean, to whatever we have now 3d printers yeah nfts all that yeah i mean when i when i printed my first staple shirts i was um hand burning film into a silk screen with emulsion you know and uh, the first, my first marketing campaign was, was Kinko's flyers dropped off at like local bars, you know? So like that was social media marketing back then. So I've, I've seen pre-internet, right? Cause when I was in college, internet wasn't everywhere. You know, like my first business card for staple had just my landline phone number on it. It didn't have an email address or a website on it or, or a cell phone number. Um, so I've seen that I've seen, um, internet come, I've seen e-commerce come, I've seen social media come, and then now metaverse come. And I think if you have like your brand voice really locked and loaded, like a solid concrete foundation on what your brand voice is and what you mean, then all of these technological advances just become like a different, it's almost like a different speaker system that you plug into your amp, you know? And in the beginning, the speaker was like a Dixie cup. It was just like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, one of those. Then it was like the Bluetooth speaker. Then it was like the big, you know, Beats speaker. Yeah. And then it became bigger and bigger. And now like the speakers are really yeah. big and, and powerful. And it's connected but, like, to your, your if, nest home or something. Yeah. 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 It's it's mad like connected. But if you don't have anything to if you don't have anything good to plug the speaker into, it doesn't matter, you know? So I think that's how I've been able to adapt through through these 25 years. Um, and now, and 
you know, now it's really exciting with NFTs and Web3. It's like, to me, this is like as exciting as when the internet was born, you know? So I'm, I'm super um, amped on what's going to happen in the future with this blockchain technology. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Stapleverse? Yeah, Stapleverse is um, just my foray into, into Web3 and how I'm going to take all the 25 years of content that I've created um, and products and then um, flip the script on how I can interpret that in the form of NFTs and, and a community, you know. But really, uh, I want that to be community-led, meaning for the past 25 years, you know, everyone wants to be like Ralph and Steve Jobs, right? which is like this concept of like this vision of like, there's like this room with like Johnny Ive in it. And like, we right. design shit in a vacuum. And then on this day of the Apple keynote, we're going to release that to the world. And you don't know what the fuck is going to happen before that. But on this day on the Apple keynote, it's available now world accept it. That's a very top down right. level of like design thinking. I think what's powerful about web three is that the community is going to have a hand in being able to design together and have a say in it. And I think that collaboration, by the way, Web2 with like Hypebeast culture really ushered in collaboration culture, right? Which is collaboration culture is like big brand, work with innovative artists and do stuff together, but it's still top down. Yeah. It's still like Supreme, North Face, here it is, right. buy it. Yeah. Right? Audience, Community audience. Line. But now it's- audience or whatever. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Now it's going to be like, It'd be like if Supreme walked out to their lineup and said, hey, what do you guys want? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right? Yeah. Exactly. That would never happen in Web 2, but Web 3 is going to allow that to happen. I, you know, I love that. And it, I'm working on a project right now. I can't say too much about it, but working with a blockchain client where we're trying to give them actual open source identity tools so that the community can help build the identity with them. Right. And then we just talk so uh -huh. much about tools. I'm sure you do too. We're talk about like um, guidelines and how like, you know, um, toolkits, things like that, that are not just deployed, but are also created at the same time to output <coughs> in totally different ways, but guided by the actual individuals who have to use it, touch it, feel it, live with it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, imagine if, exactly. Yeah. It's like um, the YouTube comments coming to life and making content for themselves. Yeah. Scary. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you know what? Maybe that vision scary. Maybe we lean away from that one. <laughs> uh, I have a question like, in terms of identity, right? Like, well, one, like, when, when you started going by Jeff Staple, did your parents feel mm -hmm. some type of way about that? And also, how does your Chinese identity come into play in your design work? Does it? Um, okay. So I didn't name myself Jeff Staple. The, that manager at Triple Five Soul called me Jeff Staple. Uh, and the funny story is, he was, I'd walk in and I'd like deliver an order. He'd be like, yo, what up, Jeff Staple? And I'm like, don't, that's not my name. Don't call, I literally like, don't call me Jeff Staple, right? And he'd be like, but why? You're Jeff and uh, you have a brand Staple. And he's like, frankly, your last name is like really hard to say because my government last name is is NG, right? So there's no vowels in it. It's a very common Chinese yeah. name, but I was like, wait, it's very hard to hard, say for Americans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so he, he called me Jeff Staple and then the guy from union started me calling him Jeff Staple and then it, it just stuck. Right. And I didn't like it because, um, you know, I looked up to, uh, I actually looked up to Mark Echo. I, I still do. He's like a mentor of mine, but like, I know that's not Mark Echo is not Echo's real name, but it's based off of his brand. But I always felt like, man, I know Mark's killing it, but maybe one day he doesn't want to do Echo anymore. And he's just going to have to be Mark Echo, which actually happened, right? Like he is not part of Echo, the brand anymore. He started Complex, but then he's still like Mark Echo. So I was like, I didn't want to be sort of pigeonholed into like only doing staple, but it is what it is. It happened. Um, my parents, uh, I don't think they cared that much, to be honest. They, we never really had a discussion about it. Um, and in, in terms of my, my Chinese culture, you know, I'm still dealing with um a bit of an identity crisis because growing up you know like i was never asian enough to be adopted by like the air quote like normal asians that like mm. went to piano class studied chinese school 
you know, went to dim sum on in Chinatown. Like I wasn't Chinese enough for that. I wasn't, I couldn't read or write Chinese. I wasn't fluent. Definitely wasn't white enough to be hanging out with like the white kids in, in New Jersey. So I was always this sort of like lost foreigner. Um, and then when I went to NYU, which was really dope because NYU student body was like 40% plus Asian, right? So I was like, wow, like no one's going to call me a China man or a chink today. Like that's amazing because there's like actual other right. Asians to like <laughs> win. collectively kick ass now. Yeah, win. Like we can actually like <laughs> like win now, you know? Um, but those kids were like, yo, let's like go to karaoke and like let's go to like uh, this Koreatown nightclub. And I was like, Oh, I hate that mute. I hate that whole yeah. like super Asian there's, culture too. Uh, you know, yes, there's pros and cons. Yeah, yes. So right away, I was like, oh, I'm not down with them either. You know, and then I I became a big, you know, as I mentioned, fan of like hip hop culture and everything. But you know, back then, not a lot of Asians in those hip hop environments. Yeah. So I'm also a foreigner in those too. So I always felt like I needed to uh, to sort of cover who I was. Jeff Staple happened to actually be a perfect cover um, that that was given to me. And then in my designs, you know, there was a couple of other uh, Asian owned like small streetwear brands back in the day. And they would like actually put like red dragons and lanterns and like Chinese letters and stuff on their on their clothes. And I always didn't want to do that. Um, and I think it's part I, I'd like to convince myself that partially I felt like. I was forward thinking enough to know that that's limiting and that if I wanted to be a global brand, I needed to think beyond just being Chinese. But to be honest, if my therapist was in the room, she'd probably tell me that you had an identity crisis <laughs> and you were actually probably a little bit embarrassed to be Chinese. You know, and I remember when like living in Jersey, when my white friends would come over, like I would actually hide the Buddha statue that was in my front oh, door. Wow. And I would like okay. try to fan out like the, the the food smells, and I would try to put away like the cheng fun and lap cheng, you know, out of the fridge and put like Elio's pizzas and like you know Yo, like food the, shame the is microwavable a hot pot. Food shame is a thing. I, yeah. yeah, man. But but that's so crazy because imagine now like. Yo, you're Buddhist? That's fucking dope. Yo, you got this ill Chinese yeah. food? That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. you know, like, oh, be, this food tastes envy. dope. Like, yeah, oh, this is so different from what I have. That's cool. They'd want to experience it with you. Exactly. But back then it was shamed. And so I think I still, because I was like the first 17 years of my life, I still carry that sort of level of like a little bit of shame in me. And I'm trying to shed it, of course, now. And it's it's now it's like, you know, Asians kill it. Like, right. we, you know, it's so dope. But like, I'm still I'm still getting over that inferiority complex. I yeah, think. same. I so it never. So to answer your question, it never shows up in my like clothing. And I, I, I like that. I like that you can go to Atlanta, you could go to Paris, right. and you could find Staple in a store, and you're not like that's a great Chinese brand, man. He Staple is the number one Chinese brand. I would say like that would kill me. That would <laughs> fucking kill me if someone said that. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. It's it's the. Especially at the time, it really wasn't cool to be Asian. I think that there was a time when, uh, in the late '90s or early 2000s, there was an awareness that there were uh, there were a lot of Asian personalities driving culture, but it wasn't like a positive acknowledgement of the individuals doing it. Like people knew Nigo was killing it, people knew that like Chad Hugo and NERD was killing it, but it wasn't like, mm -hmm. hey, let's circle around it with a level of pride it's and it's and it's so it was an anomaly it an, it, actually you're right it was it was anotherness and it was an anomaly and it was an outlier from what was mm -hmm. actually happening but now it just feels like it's a high like a lot of regularity when we're all just celebrating which is great yeah. yes it's 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 more normalized now more normalized. Yeah, did you watch the uh jeremy lynn documentary oh which one uh lynn sandy lynn sanity or 36 Thir at the at the garden 30, 30, oh, 38 at the garden, at the garden. Yeah. yeah 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 there's a, there's a, I mean, yo, when Tyson I watched Chandler, that, I just I like, understood so much. Tyson, yo, Chandler, remember when he said like the day that, uh, that Jeremy Lin got brought up to the Knicks and he was on the, the floor that all the Knicks players stand at the yeah. hotel. Chandler was like, who let this guy into our floor? Like, what the, like, and, and he's like, no, I'm playing with you tomorrow. Yeah. He's like, oh yeah, get out of here. What do you want a signature? <laughs> you know? <laughs> He said yo, that. He did. told that story. It's I hilarious. It, 
it's so fun because he's just being himself. He's just like outlining the events that happened on the day, but it's so yeah. indicative of the 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 perception. You know, it's a great mm -hmm. it's a great documentary. Yeah. It's like his his team was it's short and short sweet. sweet. Yeah, yeah. he's a ring. Mm -hmm. He's got a ring. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the fact you know yeah. what it is the fact that like after a month of playing the way he yeah. did for like and then when they interviewed Kobe. They're like, what are you going to do about Jeremy Lin tonight? And he was like, I don't know who you're talking about. Kobe might have been playing his Mamba mind yeah. game, but he wouldn't have said that about Kyrie Irving or right. like somebody, you know what I mean? Or Dirk Nowitzki. It was, he was sunning us as a, as a culture. Yeah. yeah. You know, and everybody, not just Kobe, but everybody was. Yeah. It, it was, there was definitely that, yeah. um, the Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston, I don't know her type of thing, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, uh, yeah. no, Mariah Carey and oh, another, another amazing. Anyway, whatever. Like, yeah, it's like that type of thing. But, uh, uh, yeah, not on my radar. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, yeah. he's like, not on my radar. I don't even yeah, I don't have yeah. Google. Yeah, um, <laughs> I feel, ugh, I I feel that we're it's still on the cusp, and that it's not on the verge, and we're, we're on the cusp, but. Like a, a documentary like that, it kind of it fills me with joy because that's dope. But a part of me thinks, man, I wish Jeremy just kept playing that way. Like, well, I wish he kept playing that way with a fearlessness and was like, fuck you. I'm going to just kill it every single day. But then there was a bit of a taper off and not to turn this into a Jeremy Lin like commentary. But he he did lose a little bit of that spark. Like if I was him, I'm like, you know that I'm selling tickets here. I don't have to I don't have to do the fucking crazy dragon hair. To, to get attention let me mm -hmm. just play well to get attention here give me the fucking yeah. ball right i think I, I think there's still there's a lot of that pressure that comes and i think the modern day version of yeah. that is um naomi osaka yes and the moment the moment where she beat serena williams oh. at the u.s oh, and Open then she had the, the tower cried. her head yeah she cried and she apologized to new york for beating serena yeah like what is that that's that is fucking generations of Asianness and like you must be humble, you must bow, you must be respectful. Like no other athlete would have been like, I'm sorry. Like she said, I'm sorry. Like people were booing and shit. Yeah. Like I was like, like what is this? What is this moment? It's, it's, although I mean, the yeah. what was happening? Like Serena had that little, um, she had the little fight with the with the ref over like the cheating thing. Yep. It was, it was a weird moment. I was like, "What? Why are we stealing the spotlight from a, a winner?" Naomi, yeah. yeah, it was a it was a classically only Asian. It would only happen to an Asian person. Yes, type of thing like black, brown, white. It would not have happened. Exactly. Anyone else would have like you know yeah. chalked up the W and be like, "Yo, I'm here." Yo, like like hold a trophy up high, like cheer. Exactly, you know? like WWE. But we have like we have that right now. Yeah. Yes. I don't give a shit. Yes. And we have all this angst. No. This identity. Do you think angst. it's helping us? Yeah. Identity angst? A part of me thinks it's like actually driving us forward now. I think it was a, a bit of a suppressant a few years ago. It I think it actually low-key helps us put our nose to the grindstone and just work. Like we, you know, it's it's difficult for us to be braggadocious and to like express ourselves like in an outwardly manner, but we can express ourselves through work ethic. So I'm not going to show you by screaming into a mic and being like Joe Rogan. I'm going to show you by like owning Yahoo, <laughs> you know, like that's how I'm going to do it, you know, like on the low. And I, I think that drives us to to do it in that capacity versus like beating our own chest. Yeah, we can. Which is kind of like gangster in its own way. Yeah, that is. We can express ourselves through work ethic. I don't think I've ever heard that before. Well, that's so true. That's a hell of a T-shirt, <laughs> yeah. actually. I would wear the shit out of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'd just love to talk a little bit about community. I know you don't have a lot of time, but I just want to do a couple of quick hitters here. Um, you've okay. been building so much community over the past few years, and also so many amazing individuals have come through Staples doors, like your doors within your ecosystem. Like, how do you do, have you ever put into words how you think you've affected community and also design as a whole? And also, who, who are some of the favorite children let's say of staple design yeah it's a the people that have come through and have done amazing things is easily one of the proudest things that i've created in this brand it's not the products it's not the sneakers it's the fact that like 
50 plus people, some with uh, partners in life, some with children, like have health benefits, 401k, steady paychecks. You know, I have never, knock on wood, but in the 25 years of being a streamer brand, I've never said like, yo, 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 hold off on the paycheck this week. Like, can you just not deposit it this week? Or like, can't pay you or like, you know, we've also never skipped the season ever, you know? So like just this consistency of being able to support like this entire ecosystem of people who have left. And, and I love, one of the things that I'm also most proud of is when they leave, we continue to work together at wherever they are, you know? So like my previous head of marketing, um, at Staple, her name is Anna Sean. Oh, yeah. She's now Anna. at Spotify. Yeah. And Anna's like the queen, you know, and she's at Spotify now. And she helped me tremendously in starting the business of hype for Hypebeast, yeah. you know, on the podcasting tip, you know. So because a, a lot of times when like you leave your employer, there's a bit of like, you know, bad taste and something happened. But like, I find that far and wide, 98 percent um when people leave Staple, it's it's to go on to you know greener pastures, and I'm fully supportive of that growth, uh, and I want people to win, you know. Yeah, um, actually, Anna, so that's Anna one Sean of the things got that I'm me most into Anchor, the platform that we record on. She got me into this. Yeah, like that's amazing. She's she is amazing. Yeah, um, yeah, and then you know, there's other OGs like I don't know, like Nico Reyes, who's been with me for like nearly 20 years now. You know, Kim Kim is my uh, assistant and. She started out on the floor of Readspace, you know, and then she went from Readspace floor to like curating gallery shows at Readspace. And then now she's, Kim is the only person actually that works across all of those companies that I mentioned, like Stapleverse, Staple Pigeon, and Read Art Department. Like she's the, she's the filter across all of them. So like, it's just cool to like cultivate that. Um, but also I will say that I don't like to keep tabs. Um, I feel like I know those people and everyone knows that person that is like, oh, I did you this favor. So now you owe me this favor. You know, like they, they, they're keeping like a tally and I, I hate that. And so I even though I know I'm doing good and like there's positive things happening, I don't want to keep a record of it because then I'm feel like I'm going to be like, oh, I got you that. So now you owe me this. I just want to put good karma out into the world and know that it's a boomerang effect. It'll come back to me, but I'm also not keeping track of it. So like if it's, if it reciprocates itself, that's great. If it doesn't, I also probably don't remember. So <laughs> I just try to like keep it moving in that way. Yeah. I don't, I don't take it too seriously. Cause if I did, I'd be like a nitpicker. about. Yeah. It. I hear you. Um, actually, you know what, yeah. speaking of which I, I actually forget this. I designed a t-shirt for you for staple, like back in 2012, I did two t-shirts. It was, um, tell me it was the, uh, the religious there was a religious based collection yes and i did yes. a t-shirt oh one of them was a um a, a pocket a pocket tee with a bunch of like different religious symbols it was all the symbols yeah, i designed that wow and then i used your um the staple plus symbol on the on the front of the pocket and then also i did a virgin yeah. mary virgin mary uh line art illustration and, yes. and it was it was blue gradiated down to black and then she was standing uh -huh. on top of a snake i was like it basically just kind of recreated a religious a catholic religious iconography i remember those vividly oh dude. get out of here wow that's oh dope. that's cool i remember those vividly yeah oh. yeah because it was like it was like uh carrying all the religious symbols in my pocket i love that concept oh one. dude yeah and yeah. and and the virgin mary one was actually very like uh, we almost didn't make that because my, nico my head of sales was like Oh, like we might upset like the Christian we Catholic upset the community with this. And I was like, <laughs> I think the Catholics. I was like, ah, dope. fuck it. I think they would actually love it. They'd be like, oh, word, you have a new T-shirt. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Well, that's funny that you. Remember wow, good that. looking out. That's yeah, dope. that was like over ten years ago. That's wild. Yeah, uh, yeah. Small. It's like an MC remembering his like first first tracks. Like he still remembers the yeah, words. You know, he can still perform exactly. it. Exactly. Although <laughs> Little Kim doesn't. I saw her perform recently. I was just like, ooh, you don't remember anything, dude. <laughs> <laughs> She's a mumbling. Yo, legit. Uh, okay, I have a couple of quick hitters here. So uh, if you were in an island and can only take with you three creative tools, what would they be? Um, it would be uh, an X-Acto knife, a, a graphite pencil, and the X-Acto knife can sharpen the pencil, and a sketchbook. 
That's it. That's all I oh, need. Perfect. No, that's great. Don't have to charge. Don't have to charge them. Don't need the dongle. <laughs> don't need USB-C. You know, I'm on an island. I could still create with my pencil. And then the exacto knife, I could probably like open a coconut with it too. So it'll be good. It'll come in handy. Multi-utility <laughs> tool. Uh, yeah. Uh, favorite design collaboration? Uh, of my own or? Of your own. Or Actually, ooh, of my own. Two-parter. Of your own and then not your own. Um, favorite design collaboration of my own. It's so hard because it's like, it's the ne- it's always the next one, you know. Mm. Um, damn, I'm gonna say Nike considered maybe. Yeah, you know, I think that's a that's a low key one that people don't really know about that that I worked on. Um, and it wasn't based in hype. It was based in like you know, um, the environment and sustainability at a really early time. Um. And I just think being able to work with that with that team um, and like it's actually having a resurgence right now. Like people are figuring out like that what Nike considered is and what that right. Meant. Like the space um, hippies are so kind, kind of, of cool. um, they're the they're yeah. like the children it of it. Alive. Yes, yeah. So I I I named it like I named Nike considered Nike considered, oh, wow. uh, and I wrote the first I wrote the manifesto of Nike considered. Um, and then I also worked uh, to create like the checklist of what would be considered Nike considered and what is not Nike considered, you know, like all of the points that it had to hit. Uh, and that was a really long, meaty process, like probably like a nine month process. And then we launched Nike considered first at ReadSpace. So um, that one is something that I was I was really proud yeah. of. A lot of um, lot uh, of favorite, especially on Nike campus, yeah. like, people are always bring up those models because the uppers were so unique yep no glues no adhesives um favorite uh i'm gonna i'm gonna shout out the guys at artifact as my favorite one right now like what they're doing wait did you ask for collaboration or just project i forgot Um, what did you say collaboration that you weren't a part of like a non-yours collaboration yeah fine so I, I think artifact NFTs. I mean, probably the greatest collaboration you can have is like getting acquired by Nike yeah. <laughs> fully. Good, so good like call. that that's a good collab. Pretty good. Right? That's Pretty a nice collab. collab so, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think I think the growth of um, you know, we did the meta pigeons with artifact last year, which is crazy. And they were just three fucking, you know, knucklehead kids doing NFTs and we did meta pigeons together and really changed the NFT landscape with that. But then in that short amount of time from that to Murakami clone X to then Nike acquisition is like, that's honestly web three right there because those three kids like, you know, Clegg, you know, was designing skins for like, you know, video games, like just creating his own, like, you know, uh, uniforms. Benoit, worked the stock room at Colette in Paris. Okay. He told me like, I used to stock staple shirts at Colette. And so that analogy that I said, that dream analogy I said of Supreme walking out and asking kids in line what they want. Artifact are those kids in line. And now they're in Beaverton, like getting acquired by Nike and doing the sickest collab. Like they just did a Remova collaboration now, you know? So like, that is Web three. They're the definition of that. So they they get my vote um, for for inspiring collaboration. That's a great answer. That's a great answer. Uh, what is progress for you? And I'm keeping the word progress a bit open ended. But how would you define progress? And also, what does mm-hmm. that mean to you? Um, progress to me equals consistency, which is almost like an oxymoron, because when you think of the word consistency you think of maybe like not evolving or like not change, just doing it the same. That's like consistent. Right. But I think, and so that might be seen as like the opposite of progression, but I actually think long-term progression happens from ever so slightly nuanced changes, but mostly just being consistent, you know? And what I mean by that is like, oftentimes when I work with young people, they fail because they just don't show up. Like just showing up is, if you just show up, you're beating 50% of the class. If you show up five minutes early, you're beating 75% of the class, you know? Now it's like, 
do now just execute on that, you know? So it's like, it's always to me, the basic fundamentals. It's like going back to like, you know, we talked about, you know, Jordan and stuff and like NBA championships, but like what wins NBA championships, rebounding and boxing out. That's what fucking wins them. Not slam dunk right. contest. The fundamentals like, win. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's why Europeans are beating yeah. us for a hot minute because they had fundamentals. <laughs> yeah, and that's why, frankly, I think that's why America as a as a culture is in the state that it's in yeah. now because we lost our fundamentals 100%. and we became all about fucking hype going viral and blue checks and TikTok videos. Like we just became about like what's hype versus like building on the foundation. Um, and yeah, I just think progress, like being able to progress is actually just taking your left foot and putting it in front of your right foot and repeating that over and over again. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a cliched saying, but like we, we exist in a marathon, but we think like a sprinter and that's really the problem. We just, we gas out because we just are like trying to do the most with the least amount of time. We expect, uh, immediate results from everything we do and just, there's nothing in life that's going to work like that. So the expectations are just going to be like, um, they're just going to fall on, on, yeah. you know, deaf shoulders, you know, and like deaf ears. We yeah. exist in a marathon, but we think as a sprinter, that's great. Have you ever said that sentence before? That's great. I've never said that before. Damn, That's a yeah, good that's a, one. That's I gotta a solid one. one. I got, I'm going to tweet that. I'm going to tweet it. <laughs> hope it. I hope it goes viral. <laughs> hope it goes viral and uh, people on TikTok use it. <laughs> Oh, you know what? But I'll 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 just quickly say yeah. the opposite end of that coin because I think it's just it's also important. You know that joke that I just said about like I'm going to tweet yeah. that. I think that's that's actually because you don't want to be the curmudgeon that sits in the basement and 100 like, right. fuck the inner yeah like ah these like you have to accept that there are things happening and that there are like these advancements happening and you have to accept it. You know, like so I don't think shunning the internet and using like a star tech phone in your like you know dial up internet in your mom's basement is also the answer yeah. it's it's exposing yourself to everything but then having um you know uh what's the word um um uh, it's the what is that word it's such a it's oh uh boundaries. boundaries oh yes no, seeing everything, but then setting up boundaries so that you're not just like clockwork orange, like yeah. exposing yourself to everything, you know, like, yeah, no one to say when and like, turn that off. That feels poisonous to me. I'm going to yeah. turn that off, you know, like, One, yeah, uh, yeah, I, th I, I think, think two things people are trying to absorb everything. Yes, I, you're absolutely right. It's like people are trying to absorb too much and they try to do too much. But I think, you know, two things can be true at the same time. It's like it can also be too much. Yes. But also you can still have foundational support in a system that allows for growth and progress. It's like they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Exactly. Right. Yeah. right. All right. Last question. So in your own words, because uh, this issue for um, OG Magazine is about design. So in your own words, what is the role of design in culture? And you're a person who exists within this culture as a lens for culture. So what's the role of design there? To me, the role of design is problem solving. And that's what delineates the difference between a designer and an artist. I greatly admire artists, but I don't think artists exist to solve problems. And that's really the difference, you know? So like you look at someone like, um, what is the difference? You mentioned David Carson, who's, who's a hero of mine. Like John Jay is another mm -hmm. hero of mine, you yeah. know? Like what is the difference between David Carson and Murakami or John Jay and Cause? Like I think Murakami and Cause and, and Tom Sachs is of the world. They create for the mission of creating an expression, right? John Jay and David Carson, and I like to say myself too, we create to solve problems problems. Now, I'm not saying we're like saviors. Sometimes our problems could be a Fortune 500 company is having a tough sales quarter and that's my problem and we have to solve that problem. Sometimes it's a bigger problem, you know, and and a more important problem, but I think designers have to think in that problem-solving way. There needs to be an end result to the thing that we're creating. Um otherwise I I don't think that like um we even need to get started to be honest. I think we're best served when it's like, hey, we have a problem. We've asked sales. We've had. We've asked business operations. We've asked management to help, and they can't solve this problem. Maybe we need good design to solve this problem. Mm. You know, and I, I think people are starting to catch wind to that. It wasn't like that 20 years ago. You know, right. I think brands like Apple have really shown the world that, like, wow, if you actually care about design, 
you might actually that might actually make the accounting office happy as well. Yeah. It used to be like stop wasting our time with making pretty fonts and like caring about color. But now that people are understanding that the the role of the designer, I think, has elevated outside of the production room and inside the executive office, which has been really dope to witness. Yeah, there's um, have you seen this the business design index or have you used like any tools like this where um, there'll be a certain uh, type of criteria that align KPIs to design thinking or like, you know, the design output and that. No, I haven't seen that. Chart. Yeah, it's um, I've seen a couple of these charts um, and like the essentially the the growth trajectories of businesses after they've at least gone through um, a branding identity, like a refresh or maybe they've like, you know, launched yeah. a new product that was like specifically designed for a specific, like, you know, kind of global solve. And it's it's really fascinating once you put the right criteria and parameters on it to chart what that success looks like in order to quantify it. Because so many people don't yeah. quantify it and they attach subjectivity onto design. But I'm kind of taking it full circle, hearing that you... Um, started out as a journalism major, like that investigative approach and the desire to have an outcome at the end of the tunnel feels like it's so mm -hmm. natural um, in order to yeah create better business. Yeah, the the journalism, uh, the couple of years I did in journalism really helped. It also helps a lot with like copywriting and like <laughs> all the other stuff. Wordsmithing. I think that's yeah, I think that's part of good design, too, is being able to like explain yourself as well 100%. You know, articulate yourself is really key too yeah but yeah the the design that that i gotta check out that chart but like i was just talking to my friend yesterday about like you know hyundai the car company yeah. and like kia and now they have genesis right like 10 years ago like hyundai was like a, a joke like it was like a terrible car you know and so like how did they turn it around how does like they fucking kill it like Hyundai's is like the entry level Korean car company, but they're better than even like high end American cars, you know, and then like Kia, of course, like and that's all I think does investment in design thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. investment in design thinking. What a great thing to end yes. on. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. This is a great conversation. I, I would love. Yeah, to... it was. I had a, I had a great time. Awesome. I had a blast. Uh, if I'm sure we, our listeners know where to find you, but please tell our listeners where to find you. Yeah, so um, you can find me at Jeff Staple on uh, Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I'm about to start TikTok. Get out of here. All right. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to start doing viral dances. <laughs> um, so you'll find me at, at Jeff Staple on TikTok soon. And then um, shameless plug, but I have a book coming out that I'd love for you guys to check yes. out. It is my first book after 25 years. Uh, we've partnered with Rizzoli Books on this, so uh, very historic uh, book publisher uh, comes out next month or this month. It comes out soon, actually, next week. Um, and I'll be doing tours all around the world to do like readings and signings and drops and stuff like that. So hopefully I'll be visiting a city near you. Um, but yeah, definitely uh, cop my book if you can. Awesome. Jeff, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you too, Rich. It's great reconnecting. Shout out to Jeff Staple. That was such a dope conversation. Thanks for coming through. Uh, and also for the listeners, this is a, a special collaboration episode with the OG Magazine. Shout out to Che Morales, another uh, guest of the podcast, friend of the podcast. Um, and check out the OG Magazine where there will be a written version of this interview there. So a uh, shout out to them. Uh, but that said, uh, you can find the First Generation Burn podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcast content. Please rate us and drop a review. It helps the algorithm. Go to firstgenburden.com for all the episodes. On Instagram, we're at firstgenburden. And you can find me, your host, at rich underscore tu on most social media platforms. Thanks to Timothy Simonson for production. Shout out to Gym Class Heroes. Thanks to the Desjin team for their support. Thank you to Eugenia Mello, who illustrated our cover art. It's beautiful. Check it out. Thanks to you, the listener. We drop new episodes on Mondays. New one next week. Check it out. Be safe, everyone. Bye.